Well, good morning, church. It's great to be back here with all of you. And I was very encouraged to hear of your incredible generosity to those who are struggling uh, in Houston. And I'm, I'm sure that generosity will continue uh, to those who are struggling in Florida as well. And it really goes right along with this entire series and actually what we're talking about today. Grace is greater, and our focus today is grace is greater than our weakness. And oftentimes, God uses the church, his people, to bring that grace to those who are struggling and those who are vulnerable in the midst of their weakness. I, I once heard the story of a shy kid who had not been on very many dates in his life, but somehow he mustered up the strength and the courage to ask a young lady out on a date, and to his surprise, she said yes. And so they went on their first date together, and they enjoyed a meal together, and then they went to the movie theater, and when they arrived at the theater, he excused himself, and he went to the restroom and came out. They sat down in the theater. The movie started, and he realized, to his great embarrassment, that he forgot to zip up his fly. And so... What do you do in that situation, right? He, he's not sure. He's thinking about it, right? This is awkward. He can't dismiss himself. He just came from the bathroom, and the movie's just started. So he thinks through his options. He thinks, well, maybe I can do the old stretch it out, you know, and all in one motion, kind of zip up his zipper all in one motion. So he thinks maybe that's an option. Or, or perhaps I'll kind of slouch down, you know, and, and stretch, and then when I kind of sit back up, I'll zip up my zipper really quickly, and she'll never even notice. So he's weighing his options, and he decides to do the latter. And so he slouches down in his chair, and he zips up his zipper really fast, and he thought everything was okay, but he failed to take into account that the young lady sitting in front of him had long, flowing hair that was billowing down the back of her seat. And when he zipped up his zipper, it got caught in it, and it would not come undone. It was stuck, and so the only remedy was to turn on the house lights, to stop the movie, to bring out the scissors, and to cut her loose uh, from his zipper. I'm fairly certain that was not only the first date, but the last date that he went on with that young lady. All of us, if given the opportunity, could share an embarrassing moment story, right? Maybe not that embarrassing, but we all have our moments of failure, our moments of regret, when temptation faces us, when we feel overwhelmed and overcome by the struggles that we face. And it's in those moments that can cause even the strongest among us, those of us who have it really put together and portray ourselves as having it really put together, even those of us who feel strong have moments of weakness and vulnerability. Whenever I lead a small group at church or at the college, oftentimes one of the first questions I'll ask that group is a, a question that stirs a lot of conversation. I'll ask them this question. I'll say, when, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of in life? And oftentimes the responses are what you would expect. People will say, I'm afraid of spiders. How many of you are afraid of spiders here? I'm afraid of the darkness. Anybody still use a nightlight here in the room? Snakes, I'm sure we've got a lot of people afraid of snakes, right? So those sorts of things come up. People will share those things, and we can identify with that for some of us. I have some strange fears and phobias. I'm afraid of being audited by the IRS, which is really strange. And I used to have a, an IRS agent in my small group, and he would torture me with that. He would say, hey, Damien, I was at work today, and I actually saw your name on my desk. It's not funny. I kind of have this fear of being audited by the IRS. I'm also afraid of being falsely imprisoned, which is strange. Like, I don't mind 
being imprisoned. I just don't want to be falsely imprisoned. So my greatest nightmare, I guess, is to be falsely imprisoned for tax evasion. That would just be a nightmare. Right? We all have our fears. What are you afraid of? I ask the group. And eventually, the number one answer that I've heard over the years is I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of failing my family, my spouse, the future. I'm afraid of things that I can't control, my finances, afraid to fail. All of us experience those moments in our lives when we feel weak. So as we continue this series, Grace is Greater, we're going to discover that his grace really is greater than our weakness. When we find ourselves in situations where we feel inadequate, insufficient, incapable to control the circumstances around us, when we sense that God is calling upon us to do something and we're not sure that we have the ability to do it, maybe it's in our family, at school, at work, whenever we face those moments of weakness, whenever we're in a position of weakness, that's when we discover that God is in a position of strength in our lives. And we see this clearly evident in the life of a man who was the physical embodiment of weakness. As we continue to walk through the Gospel of John, we come to John chapter 5, and we read about a man who experienced weakness for 38 years of his life. For 38 years, he depended upon others for his livelihood. For 38 years, he was enslaved to this physical weakness And on this day, in this chapter of John's gospel, he will experience the strength and the grace of Jesus that would give him hope where he had been hopeless for so long. John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades or porches. And what's interesting is that archaeologists have actually discovered this strangely configured pool with its five sides, its five porches. Many believe that it was a a ritual pool for the Jewish people. And so in verse 3, we read that there were a great number of disabled people who used to lie there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And there's a parenthetical note, you'll see it in the, in the footnote of your Bible, it was added in later manuscripts, where they believed, they had this superstition, that an angel of the Lord would actually touch the water and stir the waters, and whoever would get into the waters first would experience healing. So it appears that's why they're gathered at this colonnade, at this pool, because they're trying to get into the waters. They're desperate for healing, they're desperate for hope in the midst of their weakness. Verse 5, 1 who was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, now don't miss this, there are numbers of people there gathered by this poolside. But when Jesus is there in their midst, among the broken, among the weak, he singles out this particular individual. When Jesus saw him, really saw his weakness, saw his vulnerability, saw his brokenness, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, for 38 years, he asked him, do you want to get well? 
Now, that's kind of an odd question to ask somebody who's been an invalid, handicapped for 38 years. Do you want to get well? But this is a theme that we see in the healings and in the miracles of Jesus, that oftentimes those who are weak have to be involved in the healing process, that Jesus is inviting them to confess, to admit, to say out loud their weakness and their dependency upon him, to acknowledge their faith and trust in Jesus. Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me. What a sad statement that is, isn't it? I have no one to help. Have you ever been in that situation before? I have no one to help me. Uh, I've been following, I'm sure like you, um, the tragedies in Houston and now um, that are coming in Florida. And I was listening to an interview by a woman whose house was completely destroyed and uh, the situation was it happened over the week, and the weekend c came, and there were a lot of people helping, but now it was Monday, and people are going back to work, and they're going back to their own lives, and she said, I'm afraid that they're going to forget about us. I'm afraid that I'm not going to have anybody to help me clean up. I have no one to help me, the man says. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down Ahead of me, verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. I want you to miss the power, the strength in Jesus' words here. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. When we are at our weakest, Jesus is at his best. When we are at our weakest point, our place of great vulnerability, when we are at our place of brokenness, when we're ready to give in, to give up, that's when Jesus is at his very best in our life. It's a theme that you see all through the New Testament. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their weakness, over their brokenness, over their sin, because they are the ones who will be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they are the ones who will see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they are the ones who will be filled. When we are at our weakest, Jesus is at his best. That's his grace in our lives, a grace that is undeserved, a grace that is given to us freely, that, a grace that is given to us even when we're broken and frail, when we are weak. So what is it for you? What is your source of weakness? When do you feel most vulnerable? When do you feel most tempted? I think that there's great value in actually naming our weakness and confessing it out loud to the Lord, to ourselves, maybe even to one another, to identify the weakness that's in our life, just like this man was asked to do. Do you want to get well? Sir, there's no one to help me. Sir, I am weak. Everybody else goes ahead of me. That's my weakness. What's your weakness? What is it for you? What are you afraid of? Where do you feel broken and vulnerable inside? That's what we see Paul doing in 2 Corinthians. Paul is naming 
his weakness. If you go over to 2 Corinthians into chapter 11, Paul's going to list out a series of hardships and challenges and difficulties that he's facing. And it's quite a long list. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. I was, I've been pelted with stones. I've been shipwrecked. And what's more than that, I'm constantly on the move, he says. I've been in the open sea. I, I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my fellow Jews, from Gentiles in the city, in the country, at sea, from false believers. I've labored and I've toiled and I've gone without sleep, he says. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And beside everything else, I daily face the pressures of the church. But here's the thing, for Paul, these aren't a source of weakness for him. In fact, he considers it a great privilege and honor to suffer for the sake of the gospel. No, his weakness is identified in the next chapter. If you turn the page into chapter 12, that's where we read Paul's vulnerability. Chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. He says, in order to keep me from being conceited. Now, we all need that, don't we? To be humbled. From time to time, in order to keep me from becoming self-reliant, in order to keep me from thinking that I'm the one who holds all things together, I'm the one who has to have it all together, I have to keep my family together, I have to keep my job together, I have to keep my priorities together, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now isn't that a great description of weakness right there, this nagging, constant reminder that we are weak, that we are broken, that we are vulnerable. A couple of years ago, I tore my ACL. I'm pretty active, play basketball, run half marathons, play soccer, but then I tore my ACL. And it was a, a life changer for me. And now every time I do any sort of exercise, any time I put pressure on my knee, I always feel it. It's always there, a constant reminder that there's a chink in the armor, that there's a weakness there. I have a thorn in my flesh, Paul says, a messenger, he calls it, of Satan to torment me. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but each time he said to me, my grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, I don't know if you're in the habit of memorizing scripture or if you'd like to begin memorizing scripture, but that's a great verse to memorize right there. That's a great verse to write down somewhere to put in the dashboard of your car or on the mirror in your bathroom as a daily reminder, his grace is sufficient for us. His grace, the work that he's accomplished on the cross is sufficient, is all that I need for his power is made perfect in our weakness. So what is your weakness? What is your vulnerability? What is your brokenness? Well, let me suggest just a few areas of life where I think we need to be reminded that his grace is greater. For example, his grace is greater than our unmet expectations. Whenever life doesn't go as we would hope it to go, whenever life doesn't go as we would expect it to go, I came across this uh, cartoon uh, caption here that I got a kick out of. I'm going to throw that up there. Disney on ice. This isn't what I expected when I bought the tickets. How many times do we say those same words right there? This isn't what I expected. This isn't what I had anticipated. This isn't what I had hoped for. Maybe you're a newlywed and you think this is not what I had expected. Maybe it's a new job that you've acquired and you're so excited. It's a perfect job at six months into it. This isn't what I 
expected a relationship that you were certain would work out. This isn't what I expected for students. You study hard for a test, confident that you're going to do well, and then you get the test and you say to yourself, this is not what I expected. We've all been there before. Just ask the folks in Houston and now in Florida. This isn't what I expected. This isn't where I saw myself being. This isn't the challenge that I expected to overcome and to deal with. I came across a story recently of a couple who's been married for 75 years. 75 years. He turned 104 in July. She's, she'll be 93 in November. She married an older man. 104, 93. Married 75 years. Their names? Harvey and Irma. There they are. I'm sure they would tell you in their 75 years of marriage and in his 100 years of life that life rarely ever goes as we would expect it to go. And it's in those moments of unmet expectations that we're reminded of what Solomon once wrote in Proverbs 16:9. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. When life doesn't go as expected, that's an opportunity for the grace of God to show up in your life. That's an opportunity for God to show you that he has something greater than our expectations in mind. So is that your weakness? Unmet expectations? Is that what you're facing right now? Or maybe what you need to be reminded of this morning is that grace is greater than our unhealthy comparisons. Our unhealthy comparisons. What a dangerous thing it is to get into the business of comparing ourselves to other people. And I think that's one of the great dangers of social media. We see perfect family pictures, great vacations, huge accomplishments, hyper-spirituality, and it's so easy in those moments to think less of ourselves, to experience weakness in that comparison. The University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine conducted an extensive research of young people who use social media. And here's their conclusion. The more young adults use social media, the more likely they are to be depressed. Now, I don't think that's just true of young adults, right? I think that's true of all of us. Why is that? Well, there's a variety of reasons that can be given, but I think at the heart of it is this comparison game. When we begin to see ourselves not through the eyes of God, but when we begin to see ourselves through the eyes of God, of other people, and we measure ourselves up against those who are around us. It can create an emptiness in our soul that can't be filled, a weakness that leaves us vulnerable. When I was in college, uh, I believe my junior year, I worked hard on a term paper. It was for Greek too. I spent days and weeks researching and working on this paper, spent hours all day long typing it up. I didn't have a computer at the time. I was borrowing my roommate's computer sitting at his desk. And when I was finished, this 15-page paper, I was obviously excited and I shared in my joy with my roommate and with the guys on my floor. And my roommate, who's a bit of a practical jokester, sat down and said, well, let me take a look at that paper. And he sat down at the desk and he highlighted the entire paper all 15 pages, and then he hit the delete button. Now, in his mind, he was thinking, all I have to do is hit undo, and the paper will reappear. But I, in a moment of panic, and a little bit tired, I pushed him out of the chair. I sat down. I said, what are you doing? And I hit the save button. 
So you understand what I've just done, right? I have saved a blank document and essentially deleted forever this 15-page term paper. All-nighter. Whenever we make unhealthy comparisons and we measure ourselves up against other people, it's like we're hitting the delete button on our soul. It creates this emptiness that will leave us weak. When we're tempted to do this, I want to remind you, and if you're being tempted to do this, I want to remind you today of who you are. You are God's dearly loved child. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. That's who you are. God's value on your life is not measured by your achievements or your accomplishments. Your value is based upon the work of Christ on the cross. He considered you valuable enough to die on the cross, to be buried in the tomb, and to rise on the third day. That's how he sees you, and that's the most important measurement we can have in our life. That's his grace in our life, greater than our unhealthy comparisons. Maybe what you need to be reminded of, though, this morning is that his grace is greater than unmanageable people. Now, I'm sure that you would agree that one of the greatest sources of weakness are people that we can't manage. Can I get an oh yeah on that? The people that we love the most oftentimes are the greatest source of discouragement in our life. We have a hard time dealing with them. We have a hard time knowing how to respond to them, what to say to them, how to and interact with them. And these struggles, these challenges that we face at work or in our family, in our relationships can cause incredible weakness in our life. I asked a coworker recently what her source of weakness was, what her source of discouragement was, and without hesitation, the first thing she blurted out of her mouth was the name of a person. She just said it right now. I'm gonna not share with you who that coworker was or who that person was that she named, but I thought it was revealing and interesting. And I wonder if that would be true for you as well. What is your greatest source of discouragement? Does a person come to mind? In fact, on the count of three, I want you to name that person out loud. Are you ready? One, no, I'm not going to, because it would get really awkward if you name the person sitting next to you. That would be an awkward experience. But I'm sure you would agree that other people oftentimes are an incredible source of discouragement. But here's the thing. We can't just get rid of people, right? Like, we really can't. You can't just do that. We have to interact with them. We have to love them. We have to be patient with them. So what's the answer? What's the alternative? The alternative is forgiveness. To be a forgiving person. To embody the forgiveness of Jesus in our life. To forgive others even before they've wronged us. Even before they've hurt us. To let go whatever bitterness, whatever hurt, whatever pain has been caused. Ephesians 4.32 be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. His grace is greater than our pain caused by other people. We not only receive that grace, but we give that grace in response. So what is it for you? Unmet expectations, unhealthy comparisons, unmanageable people, or maybe it's something else. Maybe there's some other source of vulnerability, some other source of weakness in your life. Whatever it is, 
This morning is an opportunity for you to offer it up to God in worship and in prayer and in confession to name that vulnerability, to name that weakness, and to say, God, I know sometimes I don't feel it, but I know it, God. You are greater than whatever weakness I'm facing in life, trusting that he can be made perfect in your weakness, believing that his grace, what he has done for you, really is all that you need. For when we are at our weakest, Jesus is at his best. I'll finish with this. My father taught me how to play chess when I was eight years old. We didn't have a lot of things in common, but chess was one of those things that we enjoyed with one another. So eight years old, he taught me how to play chess. And, and I have a nine-year-old son. When he was eight, I taught him how to play chess as well. And he's never beaten me, ever. So here's a picture, actually, of me beating him in the Northwest Arkansas airport. So I'm passing on the tradition because I never beat my father in chess. He passed away when I was 16 years old and we had played chess together for eight years and I never had the opportunity to say checkmate to him. It was always in reverse. Four moves, eight moves, 15 moves, checkmate, checkmate every single time. I could never beat my father in chess. He would try to encourage me and try to give me words and bits of advice. He would say, son, you gotta remember, your best offense is your best defense. You understand what I'm saying? No, I don't understand what you're saying. Or he would say, son, you can't just anticipate your next move. You've got to also anticipate my next move. That made a little bit more sense. But the one bit of advice that was most encouraging, he would say, son, you're still alive as long as you have one move left. As long as you have one move left, there's always hope. One move left. There's a lot of truth in that statement. You have reason this morning to be encouraged because the good news this morning is that in Jesus, we always have one move left. Maybe you're at the end of the line. Maybe you feel frustrated and discouraged. Maybe you feel weaker than you ever have in your life. But with Jesus, there's always one move left. There's a famous painting, French painting, entitled Checkmate. It's a painting that depicts a chess match between Satan and an unnamed man. If Satan wins, the man loses his soul. And as you can see in the picture there, Satan appears confident, certain, sure of victory. The man appears discouraged and defeated, despondent, and accepting of that defeat. Well, according to a legend, there was a chess champion that visit, visited the art gallery where this painting was being hung, and he studied the pieces and their arrangement on the board. And he observed that though the devil appeared confident in victory, and though the man seemed certain to lose, the painting was incorrectly named. The man wasn't in checkmate. In actuality, the man had one move left, one move of his king, and victory would be his. Jesus, on the day that he was crucified, appeared defeated. And he remained in the tomb on Saturday, and the devil celebrated, thinking that he had gained the upper hand over Jesus, confident of victory. But what he didn't know is that God had one move left. And on that third day, the king would move, and Jesus would rise from the dead. Praise the Lord. When he appeared at his weakest, what the devil didn't know is that he was actually at his best. So be strengthened today. Be encouraged today. 
If you're feeling weak, his grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in your weakness. In him, you always have one move left. Because when we are at our weakest, he's just getting started. He's at his best. Let me pray for you. Our God, we thank you for the strength that we have in you. A strength that is beyond ourselves. A wisdom that comes from you. A power that is found in you. Lord, fill us with your spirit today. Encourage us and strengthen us. And if there's anybody here this morning who is weak, who is broken, who is needing to cry out to you for salvation, we pray that they might be given the strength and the courage to do so this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.